This is The Guardian. Today, the story of a ship in distress, seven stowaways, and a hijacking that wasn't what it seemed. In the autumn of 2020, the conversation around immigration in the UK, which is often a touchy one, had grown febrile. The number of migrants crossing the Channel, a stretch of the ocean separating southern England from northern France, had rapidly increased. More than 2,000 people had attempted the journey in boats and even in dinghies, compared with 500 in the same period in 2019. Politicians and the media seized on these crossings, not necessarily as a humanitarian crisis, but as evidence of Britain's failure to protect its borders. On the morning of October 25th, a ship entered British waters and made a call to land that would inflame the situation even more. I try to keep, to keep them calm, but I need immediately, immediately agency assistance. The Nave Andromeda, which is a crude oil tanker and absolutely massive, was six miles off the coast of the Isle of Wight, so it was actually visible from the island. The Nave Andromeda was carrying 22 crew members and was en route from Lagos in Nigeria and due to dock near Southampton at 10.30 on Sunday morning. And at around 9am, the captain sent out a distress call to the British Coast Guard. I see four persons outside midship near to the manifold, and I have two of them starboard side of the bridge. Saying that he immediately needed agency assistance because stowaways on board had broken out of the cabin where they were being held and he was calling for help. By around lunchtime, the story had broken in the media and Isle of Wight Radio, the local radio station, reported it as an attempted hijacking. That's when the story first came to the attention of journalist Samira Shackle. I remember seeing it on Twitter. Uh, there were lots of people tweeting about this incident off the Isle of Wight and photos of the boat taken from the shore and, and sort of wondering what was going on there. But as frantic media speculation bubbled online and on air, the situation behind the scenes quickly escalated. By mid-afternoon, there were Coast Guard helicopters circling over the ship, and by around 7pm, there was a full-scale military operation. Involving four helicopters, and we think around 16 members of the Special Boat Service, the SBS, who descended on ropes onto the deck of this ship and used what we're told was overwhelming force to detain these seven individuals, the whole operation lasting just about nine minutes. Extraordinary moments. I think both the police and the armed forces did a fantastic job, and I, I thank them very, very much for what they did to uh, keep our shores safe. But behind the political posturing and the media commotion, there is the hidden story of seven desperate stowaways fleeing Nigeria and how Britain treated them. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, what really happened on board the Nave Andromeda? So 
Samira Shackle, you're a freelance writer and author, and you've spent months working on the story of the Nave Andromeda. But it doesn't begin in the waters of the Channel. It begins in Nigeria with a man that we're calling Michael. Can you tell me about him? Michael is a young man who's now 26. He is softly spoken. He's got a very serious face and a serious tone, high cheekbones. Uh, On one cheek, he has a scar, uh, which was inflicted during a violent initiation into a gang, which he joined as a teenager in Lagos, where he grew up. Organised crime is extremely powerful in Lagos. And when he, soon after this initiation, decided he wanted to leave the gang, he was forced to run away from home because he was uh, so worried about violent reprisals. He spent the next five years or so living away from his family, hoping that this would keep them safe, uh, living rough on the streets of Lagos, picking up work where he could. And after about five years of this, word came to him that the gang had shot and killed his mother, at which point he decided that he had no option but to try and get out of the country. And so... Having made that decision, he realises his best option is to go by sea. But how does he end up on the Nave Andromeda? So this friend of his, who was an elderly fisherman who'd offered him work near the port, got him onto his fishing boat and they sailed up to the Nave Andromeda, which was anchored about 10 miles off the coast. They sailed round to the rudder, uh, which is part of the steering apparatus of the ship that's attached to the outside of the vessel. And there's a large pole that links it to a steering room inside the ship. And around that pole, there's a recess, which is called the rudder stock. And it's a space that's less than two metres wide. It's really noisy, really dangerous, not designed for human occupation, exposed to the elements and to the open water. And right next to the propeller fan, which is a huge fan that um, propels the vehicle forwards. So it's extremely, extremely dangerous and extremely cramped and extremely exposed all at once. Who else was with him? So he entered the ship alone, but while he was on the rudder over the course of that day, six other men also entering via small boats climbed onto the rudder too. So there were seven of them in total there crammed into a space that's no more than two metres wide. Oof, it just beggars belief and seems so unbelievably risky. And I guess they can't even have much more than the clothes that they were wearing. They didn't have much with them at all. So they were there with some bottled water, some biscuits, um, some powdered cassava and some ropes, which they used to secure themselves there as best they could. What was their intention once they got on board? I think all of them just wanted to get away. And I spoke to two of the seven, so Michael and one other man, and both of the two I spoke to were escaping organised crime, had no idea what vessel they were boarding, no idea where it was bound to, no idea how long they would be there in the rudder stock. As they found themselves there crammed into this space, they speculated that maybe it would be one day or two days. And then what was the journey like for them? How did they actually describe what had happened? They were actually in there for nine days. They were clinging on physically to the pole in the centre of the rudder stock, developing welts on their skin and cuts from the ropes digging in. They had seawater lashing them from all sides John, who's the other man I interviewed, said to me, if you fell asleep, you would fall into the water and that would be the end of your life. It's just open sea, so no matter how you swim, you can't survive it. Michael, who we've talked about, was actually phobic of water. He'd never been on a boat before and he told me that he was just desperately trying not to think about falling in, but it was simultaneously the only thing he could think about because all he could see was, was open water. Nine days somehow passed like this. Samira, it sounds so extreme and terrifying at the same time. 
How common is it for this kind of thing to be happening? Stowaway incidents are not hugely common. The most recent year that stats are available for is 2018. And that year, there were 90 recorded stowaway events worldwide involving around 230 people. That's probably an underestimate because that's only cases for which an insurance claim was made. But the point remains that stowaways make up a really tiny number of those who are migrating internationally. Samira, when they did first see land, did they have any idea of where they were? They had absolutely no idea where they were. When the Nave Andromeda arrived at port in Gran Canaria, the Spanish island, they saw land come into view and someone on a tugboat from the port spotted them. They came out of the rudder stock and onto the sort of open platform of the rudder. They summoned the last of their strength to shout and bash on the sides of the vessel to attract attention because they just wanted to get off and onto land. Their priority was survival and getting out of the rudder. But what happened then was when the captain became aware that there were stowaways in the rudder, he spoke to the port authorities, which is what a captain is legally obligated to do, And the port authorities denied permission to dock, but did send two rescue boats to help. If a ship doesn't dock, it never technically enters the country. And so had they docked and entered Spain officially, Spain would have been obligated to allow the men off and to claim asylum. Instead, what happened was the men were helped off and onto the rescue boat, thinking that they were going to be taken back to the port. But instead, it sailed round to a ladder. They were instructed to climb up the ladder and they found themselves on the deck of the Nave Andromeda, where they became the responsibility of the captain and the crew. So after this horrendous journey, travelling all this way, clinging for life onto the ship's rudder, they weren't on dry land, but they were at least safe on the deck of the Nave Andromeda. What happened when they were forced back on board? The crew treated them really well. They were kind to them. They gave them a change of clothes. They let them get cleaned up. They dressed their wounds and they got them their first hot meal that they'd had in 10 days and some water. The men were really shaky. They were in shock and the crew really helped to calm them down and found a a cabin for them. Behind the scenes, a lot was going on to try and figure out what to do with them because, of course, the Nave Andromeda is an oil tanker. It was on a commercial voyage to get cargo from A to B. That's what they want to do. They don't want to deal with a humanitarian situation or or stowaways on board. And what happens to the men next? The stowaways were locked into a cabin. The captain and the superintendent came to see them most days to give them an update on what was going on. And what they told them was that they were looking at other countries to see if they could guarantee them safe passage off the ship somewhere else. They were brought food three times a day. They were escorted outside the cabin to get fresh air and walk around the deck uh, once a day as well. And they spoke to each other. In the rudder stock, it was impossible. But while they were in the cabin, they talked about what had led them to leave Nigeria. And they speculated about what might be happening to them next, because they didn't really understand why they were stuck on board and why they hadn't been able to get onto land. John said to me, most of us felt sick and we were getting depressed being locked up. Michael was grieving for the recent death of his mother. Uh, He was afraid of the water uh, and very traumatised by the journey. And he said to me, when I was in the big sea, I couldn't see the land. Let me see the land, I was thinking, where I can stretch my legs and know I am free. And 
how many days did they then spend in this new limbo that they were in? They were there for a further five days until the vessel reached France, which was the next place that the captain decided to try and get them off. However, when he got to France, he radioed ahead to the port authorities and once again was told that the vessel would not be allowed to dock because there were stowaways on board. One shipping insurance executive I spoke to told me that um, there are very few jurisdictions that accept stowaways with open arms and she told me that this is particularly bad in Europe and America because of general hostility to migration. So put simply, states just don't want to deal with the ensuing asylum claim. So at this point they've spent five days on board waiting to get off thinking they're going to be on land at some point. How do things change once they're denied permission to dock in France? So I think the mood seemed to shift after they were denied permission to dock in France. There was concerns about the financial implications. The stop in Gran Canaria had been a scheduled stop where they planning to you know, pick up food and refuel and so on. They hadn't been able to dock and do the things they needed to do. France had been an unscheduled stop, so a sort of diversion from the planned voyage. They were running low on food rations, having to feed seven extra people. The stowaways' meal rations were reduced from three times a day to twice a day. And there was generally just a more tense atmosphere while the senior members of the crew tried to figure out what to do and while the stowaways kept stating their demand to be allowed off the vessel and to get onto land. And how were the crew trying to resolve this? What was their solution? I wasn't able to speak to the senior Greek officers who referred me to Navios, which is the company that owns the Nave Andromeda. Um, Navios also declined to comment. But the two members of the crew, more low-ranking members who I spoke to, said that the Greek officers, who are the senior officers of the crew, were having regular meetings trying to figure out what to do. They were talking to the company in Greece. And this is where things really took a turn. Albert, who's one of the crew members who I interviewed, told me that on the 24th of October, he saw all the senior officers of the crew have a meeting together in coordination with the company in Greece who were dialed in. And when the captain came to the cabin to update them, as he did every day, he said that the next morning at 10am, they were going to be dropped off in Southampton in England. The next morning, the crew was given breakfast early and told that they were going to do a drill, which was unusual apparently because it was a Sunday. They were told to go directly to the Citadel, which is a secure area on board the ship. It's a room that's sort of designed for crew to shelter in in event of a violent incident while they wait for backup to come. Meanwhile, the stowaways were in their cabin and they weren't sure why nobody had brought them any food or water that day. They watched the clock on the wall tick by and 10am, which was the time that they were told that they would be getting off the ship in Southampton, came and went. And because they could tell the ship was drifting, they started to worry that they were being taken back to Africa maybe or that they'd been abandoned and were going to have to figure out how to steer the ship. And eventually, once lunchtime had also come and gone, they decided that they needed to find out what was going on and they broke down the door of their cabin and went out into the ship to find it completely abandoned. Michael described coming out into the corridor outside their cabin and he said, we didn't see nobody, we didn't hear anything, even a rat. And John said that that's when he realised something was going on. He said... 
Why would these people decide to lock themselves in their rooms for no reason? That's how I knew something was wrong. So on the other side of this, that's how the stowaways experienced it. But what actually was happening, unbeknownst to them? The Nave Andromeda had been denied permission to dock in Spain and France. But when they got to British waters, they didn't actually seek permission to dock. They radioed out a distress call saying that there was a violent incident unfolding on board and that they needed help. And how was that distress call then interpreted in Britain? Once the distress call had been made and the British authorities were responding, the story kind of took on a life of its own. So it was very, very quickly described, uh, not just in the press, but also by politicians as an attempted hijacking. Perhaps they were trying to threaten to run the ship aground and spill the oil of the cargo, or perhaps to try and do something even worse. Uh, They seem to come from the new um, centre of piracy in the world, which is off off the West African coast. But whether they were trying to sort of coerce themselves into the UK, which strikes me as a little odd, or uh, were just trying to sort of carry out some kind of terrorist attack, which perhaps is more likely, it's hard to say. The Hampshire police sought permission to involve the military and that's the point at which Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary and Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, gave permission for the army to get involved. The Special Boat Service began to mobilise and a fully-fledged army operation was underway. Four military helicopters thought to include two Merlin Mark IVs, a Wildcat and a Chinook took 40 personnel to the scene from the SBS's base in Poole. 16 commandos fast roped onto the deck and snipers on board the helicopters gave cover. A nearby Royal Navy frigate, HMS Richmond, was put on standby in the English Channel, and Royal Navy divers were on hand in case the ship had been mined. At this point, they didn't know the stowaways, even that a distress call had been made. I mean, when they first saw the helicopters circling above, a couple of them took out white hankies that they had in their pockets to wave them to try and show that they were peaceful, and... The military operation, although it had taken hours and hours to coordinate, was over within nine minutes. How do they describe that experience of that nine-minute operation with those heavily armed commandos? Both Michael and John told me separately that they were absolutely convinced that they were going to die. John told me, I knew that we were in big trouble because there were so many forces for just seven of us. I had nothing to defend myself, and even if I did, what could I do against so many guys who looked like they should be going to a war front? So the whole operation, as you say, takes nine minutes. How did things then unfold for the rest of the evening? What happens next? So the stowaways were kept on deck for a while as the Nave Andromeda finally did dock in Southampton. They were then led off in handcuffs and taken to the police station where they were interviewed with police and held on suspicion of endangering a vessel. Coming up, how accounts from the stowaways and crew members contradict what we heard from ministers and the press, and what that exposed about how Europe treats asylum seekers. Samira, listening to you telling the story, there's something that just doesn't seem to add up. 
Was it all a huge misunderstanding or was there something else going on? Exactly. The the timings of the day certainly don't match up. I had corroborating accounts of that from two members of the crew as well as from two stowaways. Navios, the shipping company, said in a statement that the distress call was made because the captain was concerned for the safety of the crew due to the increasingly hostile behaviour of the stowaways. Um, so that's possible, but the event that was cited in the distress call itself uh, as the trigger for the call, which was the stowaways breaking out of their cabin, according to the accounts uh, I've got from crew and stowaways, didn't actually happen until several hours after the distress call was made. So there are certainly some puzzling inconsistencies. Once they'd made that distress call, were the crew surprised with how quickly it escalated and how big an operation it was? The crew members that I spoke to weren't involved in the distress call. Uh, They were in the Citadel just waiting at the time the distress call was made and they were very confused by the whole thing, to be honest. The crew member Albert put it quite frankly he just said it wasn't a hijacking it was just a drama it was a big fucking lie that's the word that begins to be used seven hijackers a hijacked tanker and its crew suspected hijacking hijacking is a specific term it's a specific crime in fact it refers to the seizure of a commercial vehicle by force or the threat of force and it's not actually a term that the captain used in his distress call and there's no evidence really that he or anyone from navios the shipping company suggested that there was any risk at any time of the crew losing control of the ship or actually any attempt by the stowaways to seize control of the ship in fact that evening lawyers for the shipping company were reported to say that it was 100 percent not a hijacking And yet British politicians, including from the official Ministry of Defence Twitter account and Ben Wallace later in an interview with journalists, uh, continued to refer to it as an attempted hijacking. And Samira, this boat wasn't swooped on by the authorities in isolation. What was happening in the channel at the time and what was the political context it took place in? The incident took place in a context of really heightened anxiety about migration and particularly about migration in the channel. There is a real sense of political panic which has been cultivated by the government for political ends. So in the summer of 2020, uh, just before this incident took place, the number of migrants crossing the channel had rapidly increased. July and August that year, more than 2,000 migrants had attempted the crossing as compared with 500 in the same period the previous year, 2019. Vigilantes have been going to sea to turn back asylum seekers. These are invaders. You should be protecting us, not them. So although this was a a tiny proportion of of overall asylum cases, politicians and the media had really seized on these crossings as evidence of Britain's failure to protect its borders. We will address the rigidities in our laws that make this country, I'm afraid, a target and uh, a magnet uh, for those who would exploit vulnerable people. Are they ISIS? Are they Daesh? Are they Taliban? Are they Somalian pirates? You don't know who you're letting in. And I think in that context, this idea of marauding pirates, co-opting and hijacking a commercial vessel really obviously struck not just the public imagination, but the particular anxieties and concerns of certain government ministers. The seven Nigerians are now being questioned by police. And after an unusually public operation, the SBS have gone back into the shadows. And what happened to the seven men once they finally reached dry land? 
Once they reached dry land, they were kept in police custody for a few days before they were transferred to immigration detention. And they were kept in immigration detention for varying amounts of time while the police, the CPS, looked into the potential charges against them. So just before Christmas, two of them were charged with conduct endangering ships under the Merchant Shipping Act. And they were taken to prison. And the reason that charges were brought against those two and not the other five wasn't because of anything specific that they were alleged to have done. It was simply logistical because they were due to be released from immigration detention and they'd been deemed to pose a flight risk. However, it was just a few weeks after that that the CPS dropped all charges against all the men. So the two that had been charged and the five that were awaiting news. This was on the grounds that there was no realistic chance of conviction. Explaining the decision, the CPS said... While initial reports had indicated there was a risk of destruction or serious damage to the ship, video footage and further analysis had cast doubt on whether the ship and crew had actually been in danger. So all charges are dropped. The men are released from the detention centre. What happens to them next? Well, then they're just left to go through Britain's asylum process, which is slow at best. And since that time, they've all just been in sort of temporary accommodation around the country waiting for their asylum claims to be processed. Samira, it's a really incredible story and it must have been such a huge amount of work to track everyone down. Of the stowaways you're in contact with, what are they doing now? Sadly, not much, actually. Being an asylum seeker in this country is is miserable. It can take, on average, between one and three years for your claim to be processed uh, and they're just really stuck in that. So... Michael is in Coventry in temporary accommodation there. He's quite depressed. When I interviewed him, tragically, he hadn't fully understood that the charges had been dropped. So he handed me a bail notice from the police and asked me to explain it. And when I told him that the charges had all been dropped and pulled up a BBC article from the previous year on my phone to show him, uh, he started to cry because he didn't realise that the case had been dropped. So he's basically waiting. He said he he sleeps a lot of the day, a lot of the time, and he's really desperate to study or work or do something. John is in Manchester now and similarly absolutely desperate to study, to work. Uh, he wants to be an engineer, but he's not allowed to study at the moment. He just has to wait. So he is, like Michael, just in a hostel room waiting for news. So just to be clear, as asylum seekers, they're unable to legally work, unable to study. Do they have any access to benefits? How are they getting by day to day? They do get some support. So they're in temporary housing, which is paid for, but then the allowance you get is something like £30 a week. So it's a really small amount of money. It's not enough to do much. It maybe just about covers food and not much else. So it's a pretty miserable situation. Samira, given what these men have been through... Have they kept in contact or been able to rely on each other for support? They're spread all over the country and they've all kept in touch with each other. They chat on Facebook, but it's not the same because they're not in the same bit of the country. So while they keep in touch, they're all just sort of separately waiting and hoping. Samira, what did you take away from this story? What did you come away thinking? I think the thing that really struck me with this story was the disjunction between the terms in which it was spoken about by ministers as this sort of triumphant operation to keep Britain's shores safe from a sort of huge, dangerous threat and the reality of it and the kind of pathos of the fact that you have this jubilant military mission and what you're left with is seven extremely vulnerable people 
something that Michael said really struck with me. He said, they say we're sea pirates and hijackers, but we're not sea pirates. We came only for survival. Samira, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Samira Shackle. You can read her full story of the strange case of the Narve Andromeda at theguardian.com. In reporting this story, Samira approached the captain of the Narve Andromeda and the ship's parent company, Navios Tankers Management. Neither wished to comment, but Navios have issued a statement saying that the reason the captain sent out the distress call was because, quote, he was concerned for the safety of the crew due to the increasingly hostile behaviour of the stowaways. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Eva Krisiak. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Cassin. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Thank you.